0: We are continuing our discussion on how the Russia-Ukraine conflict affects the Philippines and the rest of Southeast Asia in this B-side episode, which features Business World reporter Luz Wendy Tinoble and Singapore-based scholar Colin Koh. They talk about the fragility of international law, how neutrality should not be confused with being principled, and what the next commander-in-chief of the Philippines has to think about in terms of our national security.
1: Good day to our listeners. This is the second part of B-Side's discussion on the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war to the Philippine economy and why we should care about it. This time, we have another speaker and he is going to talk more about the implication of this war to us from an international perspective and a regional point of view as well. We have Dr. Colin Koh. Maybe you can introduce yourself for our audience.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Wendy, for inviting me on the podcast. My name is Colin Koh. I am a research fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies based in Singapore. My research interest ties more with uh, naval affairs and maritime security in the region, and especially looking these days at the South China Sea uh, problems. I'm very honored to be invited to this podcast to talk about uh, the implications of the Ukraine war and uh, how it might affect our part of, of this region. And I believe uh, it will tie in also with our discussion on the South
1: China Sea. Now I want to ask you more on the strategic side of things. Because when this Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict started, we didn't know this will be this kind of prolonged war in that sense. It started with the Western powers responding to Russia's aggression by opting to focus on economic sanctions on Russia at the early stage of the conflict. So, I want to know your take. Looking into how the conflict has evolved into this bigger war, what is your assessment on the effectiveness of the strategy? Yeah,
2: this is a very good case study, in fact, because if you recall back in 2013-14, the Russia adopted what we will call very commonly these days, grey zone approaches to achieve its limited political objectives. And again, you know, it's important to highlight that uh, people learn along the way the Russian successors back in 2014 that culminated with the annexation of Crimea thereafter had created a so-called cottage industry uh, commenting about the efficacy of grey zone uh, tactics as the choice uh, of approaches for countries who want to to, you know achieve limited political objectives without having to cross a threshold into conflict and obviously you know the West has learned much about it so therefore if you might be tracking what's going on since last year until the war broke out is you know the Western intelligence, community western governments and u.s in particular had gone to a very great extent to publicize and call out russian behavior such as the build-up of forces along the ukraine border with the likely uh, objective of trying to dissuade the russians from undertaking anything rash however that didn't work out as planned the economic sanctions notwithstanding, and the calling out of the Russian buildup notwithstanding, Putin, you know, pre- resumed and went on to, to stage what he called a special military operation in Ukraine that was supposed to last for a few days, but now it ended up being a few months and even longer than that, right? So I think in a way it, there are some key lessons, uh, broad lessons to be learned. of it. one is that we can't assume that, you know, the texture of future interstate conflict going forward is all about gray zone because. I think we have been somewhat loud into this thinking that countries feel that wars are prohibitively expensive and costly, whether it is in monetary terms or in men or in material or in, in terms of politics. Uh, however, in the, in this current Ukraine war has shown very well that countries do turn to conflict. They, they do, you know, resort to war if need be, and we, we have to be prepared for that. So all this talk about you know grey zone being you know the only thing we should be concerned about. About, uh, has been somewhat invalidated. Even if we agree that countries will still resort to grey zone, we can't guarantee that countries will just stop at that. They will also likely resort to war if that fits their objective and you know the, the cost of not going to war might might well be said as outweighing you know the benefits of that. So we have to be mindful of that uh, for sure. Second is obviously you know the Ukraine war it happens you know, a far away distance from our part of the world in Asia. It Has clear implications when it comes to our understanding of rules-based order. That you know we are seeing here a blatant uh, disregard of international treaties, uh, as and in particular the Budapest Memorandum that was being signed that actually would have guaranteed security for Ukraine, and that was being torn up with the crisis itself. And it also shows that international law itself is fragile, and it is not enough to just talk about rules-based order and just simply stop at that. I think it's important for countries countries to not just uh, seek diplomacy, but also to seek uh, readiness to respond to any such contingency where need be. In this case, having a credible military deterrence, whether you're talking about small states or big states alike, I think that is going to be equally important uh, going forward for Asian countries. So that that will be some of the two key lessons I will draw out of this Ukraine crisis and how it applies to Asia.
1: How does the Philippines compare in prioritizing defense strategies in relation to its ASEAN neighbors? Of course, we have the ongoing AFP modernization, and I just want to float this idea from frontrunner candidate for the vice presidential elections. Sarah Duterte, the daughter of incumbent president Rodrigo Duterte, actually floated this proposal of Filipino men to go into mandatory military service similar to what is happening in, of course, Singapore and Korea. So with this ongoing war and what it means for all of us, for the uncertainties it had caused, Dr. Colin, do you think is it high time for God? Governments to reassess defence spending, strategy, and capacity building. Given that most economies are also still reeling from the impact of this pandemic crisis,
2: for sure. If you look at the defence spending over the many decades in Southeast Asia, I think we can see a very clear trend. If you look at CIPRI a database on military expenditures as a very good indication, many Southeast Asian countries have consistently spent under one percent of their GDP on defence. Uh, over these many years and this is uh, not going to be very sustainable going forward because end of the day you have to consider that defense equipment defense investment themselves very expensive to start with uh, to get credible defense very often it is extremely costly uh, to talk about this is an issue confronting even advanced economies as well and you know this is definitely going to be a problem especially when we are looking at the current post-pandemic financial situation where we have countries countries being settled with debts and they also have to spend more money to fulfill public health and social security obligation in the current post-pandemic context. So there, there is a lot of things to unpack here for policymakers, a very precarious balance to be drawn, of course. But suffice to say is that in Southeast Asia, we have 10 different countries with very different security outlook based on geography, based on history, based on their contemporary context of national interest. So it's not to say that box works for one country could work for the other. For example, I will not go to the extent to say that because a military conscription works for Singapore, likewise, it should work for the other countries like the Philippines. So I'm not going to advocate that. What I will say is that it's important uh, from the standpoint of every country upholding its national interest to be clear of a few things. One is, what are your national interests? And to attain your national interests, what is the strategy in order to bridge your available resources and your available institutions to achieve those national interests and security objectives? And that will filter down into looking at how each agency, how each institution should fulfill its rightful role towards contributing to that process. So it concerns having a clear idea of what your national interests are and a clear objectives, clear set of institutional mechanisms um, that you can tap on and knowing uh, and being aware of your resource limitations. All these are are clearly important. But since you asked about the Philippines, so maybe I should share a bit of of uh, what I know about the Philippines. I think over the many decades, uh, there has been some back and forth between two schools of thought. One is for the Philippine armed forces to focus more on territorial defense or to focus more on internal security. If you look at the Armed Forces Act, for example, uh, it's clear that the armed forces is mandated to accomplish a whole range of peacetime to wartime missions. And that includes, of course, having to fight terrorism, having to counter uh, insurgents. And then there is definitely the traditional role of external defense, especially when it comes to the West Philippine Sea, for example. And now the thing is, the armed forces can only get so big. They can only compete so much with, you know, resource limitation. And the question is of course, what is more important? Since then, over the past two or three decades, the AFP has been largely focused on internal security because of, you know, the threat of terrorism and of course uh, the communist insurgency, of course uh, the emergence of new violent extremist groups especially, uh, which are affiliated to ISIS in the recent years, for instance. And of course the Marawi siege back in 2017 clearly highlighted that you know, this internal security threat continues uh, to persist. So it, it appears difficult for the AFP to fully shift gear to look at external defense. However, it is still a key mission. Uh, For the AFP. Now, the catch here is there are many other agencies in the Philippines who actually look at internal security. And now, the question would be hypothetically, would it be possible for the AFP to uh, relegate some of these internal security roles to these agencies so that they could take that burden off the AFP, free up resources, free up men and material? to focus on its traditional role of external defense? And will that also likely mean that it will change the texture of the Philippine military posture in the West Philippine Sea that can allow uh, a much more robust posture to safeguard its maritime interests in the area. So I think what I'm trying to say is that in view of the Ukraine crisis, in view of the pandemic situation, and in view of the fact that, you know, there are multiple security concerns and interests uh, to cater to, it is important at this juncture going forward to think about how best to sustain the posture financially and operationally in order for the armed forces to perform effectively uh, in the work that is tasked to undertake.
1: I want to know your take on the stance of election candidates regarding the Russia-Ukraine war. They were asked where will be their stance in case they become the next president as this war goes on. So, for example, Vice President Lenny Robredo, the second uh, leading candidate, She said that the war should be condemned and she said that the rule of law should be exercised and the Philippines cannot stay neutral, especially because, of course, there are some overseas Filipino workers there as well. And Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late dictator, for him, at first he said the Philippines should remain neutral, but he actually changed his stance and said, we have to protect human rights in Ukraine. And then Senator Panfilo Lacson, a renowned military person here before becoming a senator, he actually pointed out the need to condemn the war given that the country is a UN member. What is your take on their stances? What do you think is the most visible one to take? And moving forward, because we will have change of leadership soon, how important do you think will be the leaning of the next chief executive, the next commander-in-chief of the Philippines? Will it for whether he or she will be Western or China-oriented in terms of what this war could mean for the Philippines, and since we are still facing territorial disputes as well with other countries.
2: And you of know, course, I'm speaking um, from the outsider perspective without any prejudice to any uh, particular candidate uh, in, in that regard. Certainly, there has always been these uh, perspective floated around after the war broke out about the need to stay neutral. Therefore, you know, there is uh, no need to condemn and, and, and to aggravate the situation. We have heard that from a number of Southeast. Asian countries and even around the world who decided not to, for example, vote for the UN resolutions and either abstaining for it or even opposing the resolution uh, in the name of staying neutral. My sense is that people tend to conflict or confuse neutrality with being principled. I mean it's not uh you know mutually exclusive of course, but being neutral doesn't mean that you don't stand up for principle. Right? that, you know, end of the day, for smaller, weaker countries such as Singapore or even the Philippines and in relation to a bigger country like China, this is everything at stake. If anything You know, we we call that existential problem for smaller and weaker countries in the face of bigger, strong powers with the military means to impose their will against smaller players like us. So therefore, the UN and UN Charter, international law in general, has become the final frontier when it comes to small and weaker countries to safeguard their rights and to ensure that international relations are conducted on the basis of rights instead of might. So the way I see it is the Ukraine war itself is clearly a, an example of how a big power abuses its might in order to impose its will upon another sovereign country that is smaller and weaker by comparison, and even to the extent of using or abusing its. You know, position as a permanent member in the UN Security Council to veto against those uh, instruments put forth by the uh, United Nations. That currently, a silver lining to that is there is right now an ongoing process uh, of the UN General Assembly to talk about this veto power and to require these uh, P5 members to explain and justify their use of the veto power Uh, for their own agenda. I'm not so sure whether it's going to work in helping to reform the UN or even to change the position of anyone. But to be very sure, I don't think you can expect anything much out of it. Uh, We are still going to have UN SCP-5 members still sticking to their own uh, veto power because it's so valuable to use <laughs> every now and then, and for sure, you no, know, we can have all the UNGA debates about this and that, but it's not going to change the situation. So therefore, the only thing left is for small countries, weaker countries to continue to assert a principled position and not simply hide behind the shadows of neutrality and just keep saying that, you know, there's no need to say anything about it, or we shouldn't condemn anybody because it's going to aggravate the situation. It's not. Uh, spring up against an outright aggression against another sovereign country is a principled position. It has nothing to do with neutrality. If anything, you know, if one day any of us, small like and weaker countries, uh, undergo the same problem or the same exact scenario as what Ukraine has been facing now, we will expect the international community to come to our rescue, right? So I think this is important. We need people to really not confuse or conflict neutrality with being principled. So that is uh, my first response to your uh, question. To your next set of questions regarding you know, whether the next administration uh, will be more pro-China or U.S., I, I don't see it as necessarily going to be mutually exclusive or zero-sum per se. What I will believe is that no matter who is going to be the next administration, it's more likely to see the new president trying to maintain buoyancy economic relationship with China for obvious reasons that China is so economically integrated with the region and very much China has the market for export opportunities. China is a source of investments and funding and aid which countries will lose out if they decide to totally exclude it. And not to also say that all Chinese investments are bad. (laughs) Of course, there's always this discussion about debt trap diplomacy and whatnot. But again, whether you fall into a debt trap uh, isn't so much only about China wanting to fall into it. It's more also to do with internal governance that prevents you from entering into a debt trap. So this is one thing to note. Second is that when it comes to security ties, I believe the new administration is likely to continue to maintain the alliance with the US in the pocket. If anything, over the past six years of the Duterte administration, I think we have seen the sort of roller coaster ride when it comes to Philippine-US alliance relation. But near the end of the term, right now, it is clear that end of the day, the Philippines still falls back on the alliance with the US to backstop its interests against. Chinese encroachments in the South China Sea or in the West Philippine Sea. So clearly, it is a card that, that is still extremely useful. It at least puts China on its toes from time to time. So if it's being played right, the next administration, no matter who is going to be a president, if he or she plays the card well, you will be able to extract the benefits from both the US and China. From the former, it will be more security and even you know, more economic benefits. Uh, and from China, also, the con- no more economic benefits as well. So I, I don't see necessarily the need to shift to one particular side because end of the day is very much about how the Philippines will be able to exercise its agency and to assert its strategic autonomy and maximize its interests and benefits with all the interested powers, US, China, Australia, Japan, uh, India, India.
1: I'm wondering, do you think there will be any, you know, conflicts or issues in case will be a Marcos president again, given that their family has caused these controversies in the past regarding their regime and they still remain unresolved to this day? And of course, the U.S. had the hand in that of them having to go through that exile in Hawaii almost more than three decades ago. So how do you think will that impact our relationship or our alliance with the U.S. in case we have another Marcus presidency?
2: Well, uh, logically speaking, I, I don't think the U.S. government or any prevailing administration in Washington, D.C. is going to alienate whoever is in the seat of power in Manila, whoever takes over the uh, Malacanang palace, uh, he is going to continue to enjoy the attention from Washington. For reasons that structurally, currently we see in the regional security environment, it is clear that the U.S. is increasingly invested uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And under the Biden administration, clearly, the maintenance of its alliances and partnerships around the world is extremely crucial if the US is to accomplish its Indo-Pacific strategy and its accompanying objectives. So therefore, it does give a certain strategic leverage for the philippines no matter who becomes the next president and even if it's going to be uh, marco's uh, presidency i don't see the the biden administration or future uh, or the post-biden administration uh, going to abandon these ties just simply because of the person in, in power in the philippines largely because i think on various accounts on various aspects um, there has been you know a level of maturity in terms of the institutional connections between uh, the Philippines and the US, and one of which being the military to military institutionalized connections between the two countries, uh, which cannot be simply undermined or dismissed. Or disrupted by who he becomes a president and if you recall even after Duterte came to power in 2016 he had of course tried to sort of tamp down of uh, philippine u.s military interactions by cancelling this or that exercise however that's only so far he could have gone to do that largely because after all there is still this institutionalized inter-military uh, relationship that is very hard to break and it will help to maintain a healthy relationship between the two countries and at least to keep the alliance afloat all the way at least uh, till the very end of the, the six-year term of marcos right so what i'm trying to say is that whoever becomes a president is one thing but presidents come and vote it applies to the us as well but it is the institutionalized bureaucratic relationship that actually maintains those broader alliance more than the person itself so I don't necessarily see that even if a Marcos presidency comes into power, there will be any drastic revision or, or rethink of the U.S. strategy towards the Philippines only because uh, right now, structurally, regarding the regional security environment, the Philippines has become one of the indispensable friends that the U.S. needs to maintain and needs to cultivate in order to achieve its broader objectives, especially with China uh, right in the crosshairs.
1: I want to know what is your fearless forecast on how this war ends. And in that scenario, what will that mean for the Indo-Pacific region and, of course, the Philippines? And do you think is a World War three possible?
2: Uh, in the recent weeks, uh, Putin has been issuing new threats and hinting about the use of uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, So therefore, uh, quite obviously, even if some of the Western powers who have come to conclude assure that we have not yet reached this stage, we could not dismiss that completely. For one thing is that if Russia finds itself uh, being cornered into a position where it will lose uh, not just a war, but it will likely lose uh, its position or its prestige on the world stage, then, you know, it might resort to something unthinkable to reverse the situation to its favor. So it's not to say that nuclear exchange is not possible. Uh, It is definitely a possible scenario to think about and therefore to be careful about. But at the same time, at least for the region, what I will see is that if the war is going to end in the favor of Ukraine. That is it's definitely going to be a victory for international order. It's going to mean that it's actually more triumphant over Mike and, and thereby it does you know, give a boost of confidence in smaller and weaker states that the international system works and that you know, there is still a lot of hope that could be put into how the international community can respond effectively against and outright aggression uh, from, by one state to the other. But of course the worst case scenario is that if Russia wins, and of course we can quibble about what type of victory we're talking about. If let's say the ceasefire and some parts of the Ukrainian territory continue to remain in Russian hands and occupation, then very obviously we're looking at a Crimea plus situation where Crimea is still in Russian hands and some parts of the Donbass area or region remains in Russian hands as well. And essentially, it will mean that end of the day, if a smaller country has to make terms with a big power to get peace, then the only way is to have to sacrifice some territory. It may actually not be a good thing for the region. It might also mean that you may have to appease big power, you have had to give it something in order to attain some form of peace. But the other good side is that even if the war doesn't end very well for Ukraine, it might not be the end of the world. Of course, I mean, the world is still going to keep turning and, and it's going to keep going. But what it will also mean is that there'll be clear lessons that will be extracted out of it. For smaller and weaker countries, it's not just about making more efforts to try to assert the rules-based order based on international law, but it also might serve as a good wake-up call to those who have consistently under-invested on defense and, you know, for sure, for the very first time, start doing that. And if for countries that have been consistently ignoring or even overlooking even small encroachments by bigger powers upon their interests it will be also a high time to think about responding before things get more serious. So in a way, this crisis can turn out to be an opportunity, uh, the way I see it. And the other potential problem is more to do with the future of how the crisis could affect uh, Indo-Pacific developments. Is that, if anything, we are more likely also concerned about how the Ukraine war is going to mean a drastic change in the assessment by the U.S. of the situation in Europe vis-à-vis the Indo-Pacific with the big question of whether it will mean that the US could no longer devote as much attention or energy or resources into the Indo-Pacific as it originally sets out to do because of this Ukraine crisis. If that's going to be the case, what's going to be in store for regional countries? But on the other hand, there's another uh, good side of it is that in the absence of a US presence or even the context of a US shifting of attention towards Europe, we, we might still expect friendly and like-minded regional powers to step up where necessary so we could at least pin some hope on countries like japan australia or even india to try to fill out some of the voids uh, where possible so it might not actually be as dire as as it seems we, we can't certainly draw all the lessons from ukraine and impose all of them wholesale on, on indo-pacific because clearly the context is very different. But what I'm trying to put forth here is a more balanced way to look at how the Ukraine war will affect the Indo-Pacific going forward. Yeah.
1: What do you want our audience today to take away, like your final takeaways for the audience, given mm. our colourful discussion on the implication of this war to the region?
2: But it's just my general observation that I think very often in this current age of digitalization, we have internet, we have social media, we have a host of many information coming out from different places. I think it's important for any one of us interested members of the public to be aware of what we are reading and what information we are getting and being critical about this self-information before we reach a conclusion and thereby making the right judgment and, and assessment. So this Ukraine war itself is a very good example. We have seen all sorts of disinformation swirling around and it's not helped by the fact that certain countries in the region are helping to propagate this disinformation. There is no question about particular war. It's a war of an outright international aggression against an unsovereign country. It's blatant and there is no reason why this would have taken place because there are certainly avenues for diplomacy to take place and all this things about one country's grievances having to translate into an unthinkable solution to be exercised. This is just pure justification and whitewashing of the entire scenario, which unfortunately, certain uh, segments of the societies uh, around the world and in Asia tend to fall prey into a certain set of narratives on that. And thereby tend to lose sight of the broader, bigger problem, ahead, which is international law and order is, is under threat. And if we do not do the right thing, we may find ourselves in the same problem like Ukraine going forward in the future. What I will see as the, the main takeaway that I would like to bring forth to our audience for today's podcast.
1: Thank you, Dr. Colin.
0: And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Business World reporter Luz Wendy T. Noble and Singapore-based scholar Colin Ko talking about the far-reaching effects of the Russia-Ukraine war. The crisis is a wake-up call for smaller, weaker countries like the Philippines, the next commander-in-chief will have to figure out how to balance our territorial defense and our internal security. Looking at the elections from an outsider's perspective, Mr. Ko said that presidents come and go. What matters in the long run is the strengthening of structural and institutional relationships that have been established between our country and our allies. This B-Side episode was recorded remotely on April 28, 2022. It was produced by Earl R. Lagundino and me, Sam El Marcelo. Thanks for listening.